Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, August 4th, 2019, we continue our series titled Genesis in the Beginning. Today's sermon, Insanity, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Enjoy. today we're going to be in Genesis 10 and 11 if that's where you would like to turn and try and follow along Um, because we have limited time um, I will do my best to get through here in a timely manner but I want to remind you of just a few things about this series on Genesis number one of course is that it's a narrative Um, but it's also it's important to understand that it's also a Hebrew story And this story is what is in fact of creation and what God has done is being passed down from generation to generation. Today we'll take a specific look, a brief look, at the lineage of Noah. In fact, everyone who is here in this room is a descendant of Noah. And it's important for us to understand where we came from, how God organized things, how he put everything forward for us. I'll do my best to tell that story, but it's a story about family. And in this family, what has come of the family, those who have been obedient, those who have sinned and fallen short. It's a story of redemption. But I want you to see more specifically today, God's divine intervention. And also how we came to the title of it, Insanity, because we, just like then, continue to commit the same sin over and over and over again, expecting a different result. But I am so thankful that today we are here with divine intervention. Some years back, about uh, going on six, seven years now, um, I felt that God put a call upon my heart to take a job as president of a major company uh, to be headquartered here. So we moved from San Diego and we came uh, to the Phoenix Valley. And it was a great, you know, if you've spent time trying to climb a corporate ladder, it was at the top of my game, president of the largest private employer in the world, 535,000 employees. It was an incredible opportunity. But I have to tell you that when we left San Diego, as much as our family is all in California, And if my family's watching, I just apologize. I love you. But (laughs) the hard part wasn't moving from our biological family. The hard part was moving from our church family. But yet, God wanted me to move. And I had no idea in his plan that he would take a corporate junkie and he would have a divine intervention and he would make me a pastor here at Highlands Church. I'm thankful for his divine intervention, and I'm so thankful for our new church family and the love and the kindness. But as we look at Genesis, as we kind of come to this crossroad where we're going to, in Genesis 11, we're going to cross over and we'll start to see as we go forward in Genesis, um, the patriarchs. And we transition from this creative process and this story of over and over again. Not that we're going to stop sinning as of two weeks from now, but the fact is, is that God divinely intervenes. Last week, of course, Thomas spoke about the story of the flood. It's a story that's often told in a manner that protects children. 
In fact, Thomas illustrated it with below the water what was going on and the masses, amounts of people and animals and other things that perished as a result of the fall of man. The violence and the arrogance and the everything that was going on. And above the water, we see the eight people and the animals. But we sometimes picture it as Thomas so appropriately showed in some sort of a Fisher Price view of a toy ark. This ark that was gigantic and had no windows except one. I can't imagine that they all stood on the Lido deck smiling as they spent 370 days in a boat because of faith. But the story that we oftentimes don't tell our generation behind us or in front of us is that we are an obstinate and a disobedient people. The wrath of God in the flood literally poured out as a flood. It brought death upon a cursed ground. The obedient few, the eight, the righteous that lived by faith and salvation that was provided in an ark by God because of faith and obedience. You see, people in history are constantly modifying stories to accommodate our own desires rather than tell the whole story of who God is. Probably one of my favorite quotes from the 18th century comes from G.K. Chesterton. He once said that fairy tales do not tell children the dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. It's important for us to tell the whole story that there is in fact a God of wrath just as there is a God of love. It's important for us to understand that this God is intolerant to sin, but is faithful to provide a plan and a path through divine intervention to provide us salvation. We can't even tell historical stories, folklore stories from the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, these stories that we know today, these stories of Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty or Hansel and Gretel. You see, we have a vision that's a lot like the Fisher-Price model of the Noah's Ark in that we have the Disney version of these. These fairy tales were once told for the purposes of helping children to understand that evil, in fact, does exist, but so does good. We've sanitized these very tales and we have voided the purpose of them in our efforts of ourselves to protect. Did you know that Cinderella, the story spoke of the stepsisters mutilating their own feet to fit into the shoe and that their eyes were inevitably pecked out by doves due to their envy of Cinderella? Sleeping Beauty was sexually violated while she was unconscious by the king. Hansel and Gretel were held captive by a half-blind cannibal. Soldiers were instructed to cut out Snow White's liver and lungs so that the queen could feast upon them. 
You see in these fictional stories, these folklore from centuries ago, one could argue that the sanitized version that we have today are actually counterproductive to the original purpose of the fairy tales. The fairy tales were so that children could safely confront their darkest fears and know that good ultimately prevails. In Genesis 10 and 11, it's going to talk to us about God's provision through family. God was revealing the significance of a family of faith, the entrustment to the household of the stories of God to be passed down from generation to generation. It starts with our first point here in Genesis 10, verses one through 30 are about the clans, language, and nations from Noah. It is, in fact, the, the next toldah, right? It is this next generation, as we see about 10 of these throughout Genesis. And it's about the lineage of Noah's three sons. He had three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And when we start to look at the map, this geographical territory from which we all come from, and by the way, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this. So if you truly, if you want to send me an email, I will send you an exhaustive amount of information about the lineage from Noah and where you and I actually came from. But on this map, we start to understand that this geographical territory of Europe and Africa and Asia and Arabia, and we start to understand that where God, in fact, created and put his people through Noah. So we look at, I think the first one is Shem. I can't remember which, or Ham. So Ham's descendants, right, take up uh, Africa, the African continent, and Arabia. And these are the sons of Ham, and where they started to grow outwardly. Remember, the command of God was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so they went in their own clans, in their own languages, and formed their own nations. The second one that we have is Shem. And Shem takes up the Middle East. Palestine comes from Shem. We start to see this growth of the Middle East, and ultimately we will see in our next patriarch, Abraham will come ultimately as a descendant from this, from this uh, clan. And then, of course, Japheth, which takes up all of Europe from the western side all the way over to what we would call modern-day Russia and the expanse of his family that grew. And like, again, if you want more detailed and exhaustive information on this, just drop me an email and I will bury you with information about this tribe, this group of people. But what's important is to understand that what was happening. Genesis 10.5 tells us, it says, from these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and in their nations. All of us are in fact descendants of Noah. I wish I had more time to just dig in on that because it's so wrought with information. But I want to skip forward to point number two which I've simply titled The Divine Interruption of Man's Plan. Because here we are, we're fast forwarding some 700 years of that 
of those clans and languages expanding. And we begin here in 11 with the starting to build the Tower of Babel. The passage itself recounts the divine interruption of mankind's selfish plans. The plans to make a name for themselves. It's a passage that records the events that led to the Lord enforcing mankind's obedience through his divine intervention. To the divine command of Genesis 9, which talks about fill the earth. Genesis 9.1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You remember back in the very beginning, God created us in Genesis 1.27, male and female, and male and female, he created us. There was purpose and intent behind that because the responsibility was to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. We live in a society and a culture today that wants to tear that structure down for the attempts of removing God from society. You see, the sin is the same. We're going to see this exact thing unfold right here. <coughs> they were incredibly good, right, as we saw in that map, at multiplying. But the problem was is they were incredible at multiplying to a very limited territory. They weren't good at filling the earth and going beyond that territory. And there was man's plan in the middle of this. In Genesis 11:4, here's man's plan. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, so they're building a skyscraper, and let us make a name for ourselves. And listen to this. Here's what they're trying to avoid. Let's build a name to ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They are intentionally, with volition of will, ignoring the command of God to fill the whole earth. And instead, they're wanting to form a giant holy huddle, a commune of believers that will come together with an, an intentionality to remove God from the plan, kind of like from our Pledge of Allegiance. You know, it seems like our whole lives are about personal legacy these days, about building monuments to ourselves rather than to the kingdom of God. When we look at where we've been in Genesis from 1 all the way through 11, the Bible begins with God. Bob spoke that message, that in the beginning, God. You know, it's very simple. It doesn't try to convince us that God exists. It doesn't have to. It simply informs us that in the beginning, God. It's these first four words of the Bible that launch into a chapter which celebrates the incomparable greatness of the creator, God. Genesis 1 tells us 10 times that God said, and it informs us that the result of this command is that it was so. The Bible begins with a mighty declaration that God is God and we are not. That God is creator and we are his creatures. You see, that's the big picture. 
we all understand and realize that we can't violate commandments in the Mosaic law, right? We can't violate commandments two through 10 without first violating commandment number one. Thou shalt not have any other God but the one true God. The sin that keeps repeating itself over and over again, that inside man's desire to be his own God, to make his own decisions, to live in autonomy from everybody else. And as this autonomy grows, so does the self-righteousness and the narcissism that leads to gunmen gunning people down in malls, at festivals, because everything is an interruption on their life and they are their own deity. No different than the devil who encouraged Adam and Eve to doubt God's word, asking them, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see, the bitter aftertaste of the devil's food was death and sickness and stress and pain and toil. It's the very opposite of resting in a perfect world which God had created. It sets the scene for the next, for the rest of Genesis 1 through 11, and that the human population grows and people choose whether to rest in the fact that they are God's dependent creatures or whether they are to fight against Him in order to become little g gods themselves. We can tell that we are still caught up in the struggle from the way that we react when we hear the term dependent creatures. Our whole goal of our parents, we've been told this lie that we're to raise our kids so that one day they will be independent. Certainly maybe from my payroll, but their job is to be dependent upon the person of Jesus Christ. That their faith lies there. But see, our society today, we get offended by the suggestion that we are dependent upon anyone. And that's precisely the point. Adam and Eve tried to cover over their sins by making clothes from fig leaves, but they can no more save themselves than create themselves. The fully clothed Adam in fig leaves confesses to God that I was afraid because I was naked. Even while clothed, he was afraid because he was naked because he wasn't wrapped in the righteousness of a blood sacrifice. Only God can bring such forgiveness. And God reveals that he and he alone is the savior. You see, God killed an innocent animal. This was the first death in the Garden of Eden and it covers their nakedness with clothing made from the hide of the world's first blood sacrifice. Logic would dictate that Adam and Eve would, of course, tell the story to their children, and that is how sin must always be forgiven. (coughs) When their eldest son, Cain, tries to impress God with the work of his own hands, God points to his younger brother Abel's sacrifice of an innocent lamb and asks, why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Cain is faced with a choice. Will he accept that God is God and he is not? No. He prefers to be a self-assertive murderer 
than a dependent creature. He kills his brother and he founds a dynasty of rebels who will try to act like little human gods. Cain's dynasty is known to us in scripture as the sons of men. It culminates in the self-centered boasting that we see of Lamech, a descendant of Cain, when he says in Genesis 4.23, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. You see, their rage against God turns into rage against anyone who reminds them that the universe does not revolve around them at all. You've met these people, have you not? Adam and Eve, of course, have another son named Seth. His dynasty is known as the sons of God. We see in Genesis 4.26, it's because the sons of God began to call on the name of the Lord. We're, of course, told that Enoch walked faithfully with God in Genesis 5.24, and that Noah was a righteous man in Genesis 6.9, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Seth's family were the first believers that first confessed gladly that God is God and we are not. And God praised their worship so highly that he gave them a starring role in the story of part one of his Bible story. Then, of course, Genesis 6. Something terrible happens here. It's where we see the sons of God saw that the daughters of man, kind of like the sons of man, but they saw that the daughters of man were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. You see, Seth's family entered into unequally yoked relationships and they stopped worshiping God as dependent creatures. And they married into Cain's self-assertive family. This is when God says, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. So God told Noah, make yourself an ark. It seemed like a ridiculous command and an impossible command, but Noah believed God and he obeyed. Nowadays, many people laugh at the story of Noah and his ark, but to Dusor ignores the fact that the version of the story appears in all kinds of ancient anthropological writings. We find them in some of the world's greatest cultures as far back as the Mesopotamian epics of Atrahasis in Gilgamesh and the ancient Greek story of the Deucalion, as far west as the Aztecs of Central America and as far east as the Aborigines of Australia. They make note in their stories from generation to generation that there was once a great flood. It shows us three vital lessons. First, it shows us that God takes it very seriously when we sin by pretending to be our own God. Second, it warns us that God has set a judgment day for sin. There's a timer on it. And I have to tell you that the second time that Jesus will come back and intervene, he's not coming with a flood, but I promise you he is coming with fire. He warned us that in the last days, in 2 Peter 3, that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. I think we're there. 
And thirdly, it assures us that God has made a way for sinful people to actually be forgiven through the person of Jesus Christ. Men and women who try to be like God will in fact be destroyed, but God himself became a carpenter like Noah so that whoever trusts in the blood of Jesus can be saved. The continuity to the New Testament is incredible. We are in a desperate need of a message of Genesis 1 through 11. We belong to one of the most stressed out, self-centered generations in all human history. And God invites us at the start of the Bible to make a choice. Between Adam's fig leaves and God's blood sacrifice. Between Cain's hard work and Abel's faith. Between Lamech's pride and Noah's obedience. The choice is yours. You see, we will act like little G gods or we will accept that we are creatures whose entire happiness and joy is bound up in the fact that God is God and we are not. It leads us to this glorious third point that there is an interruption to fulfill the plan of God. We should all be thankful that God divinely intervenes in all of the messes that we make. So what is the picture at the Tower of Babel? What's going on here? In verses one and two, it speaks of one language, one speech, and one location. Three and four talks about mankind's arrogant attempt at self-promotion. Five and seven speaks of how the Lord confuses mankind's pride. And eight and nine shows the divine assistant in mankind's fulfilling divine command. You see, one way or another, just like Jonah, who wanted to go the opposite direction to Tarshish, right? Head over to that far west side of Europe. He wanted to head all the way over there rather than go to Nineveh. I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, if God is calling you to Nineveh, you will go to Nineveh. Even if he has to have you swallowed in the belly of a well, he will vomit you up on the shore of where you're going. You may try and run from the presence of God, but God himself will always bring you back to his plan. He will intervene. This is not license for us to do anything we please. This should be fear and trepidation that we walk in the sight of a holy and a beautiful God who has a plan and a path set before us. But at this moment, we are at the point where the tower of the building begins in Genesis 11, 1 through 9. 700 years after the flood, we're 2,354 years from the beginning of the world to the confusion that takes place at the Tower of Babel, and we find that they are 107 years working at it when God came to inspect it, to see it. The word that he uses there is raha. It's what we saw in the creation of humanity when God intently inspected and said that it was very good. Well, guess what? He's not going to say this is very good this time. Because what's happening here is that the, the son of Cush, who is the son of of, of Ham, right? He was the first on the earth. Genesis 10, 8 through 10a, it says, 
fathered Nimrod. I just like saying that name, Nimrod, right? You don't see a lot of kids running out there, oh, well, we named our kids after biblical names. This is our son, Nimrod, right? I don't know why, but maybe this is why, right? Because he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. His name literally means mighty hunter. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. In verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Here's Nimrod's agenda. This openly becomes Babylon, and it was born out of the desire to build a civilization without God. It is the original sin city. And it's kind of a redo that's taking place on, the, on Cain's dynasty to be completely void of God. This was made possible because they developed a common language so that they could communicate with each other because the clans and the nations were coming together in a holy huddle, a self-righteous huddle. James Montgomery Boyce said that the goal of this particular settlement was not to fulfill God's command, but to defy it. From the beginning, Babylon's goal was to resist any further scattering of the people over the earth and instead to create a city where the achievements of a united and an integrated people would be centralized. Kind of like the idea of a one world government. Not completing the command of God to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill the earth. Or like we see in the New Testament, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It deals with these two comes. Come let us. The first one is in Genesis 3 and 4. And it says this, it says, And they said to one another, Come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and they had bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. In other words, they wanted to remove God. You see, in the invitation, we see a vision for the city. It lacks an architect, though the one who's making the plan. A desire for a name or a reputation. The phrase, let us make a name for ourselves, stands out in light of a name. The name is being an important reference to God. It is a name versus the name. There are many Old Testament phrases that refer to the name of the Lord. Proverbs 18.10 for one says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Biblical places of great emphasis on names and symbolic meanings that are behind them. I'll send you that full story of the, the lineage of Noah with their names and what they meant. But this is a plan for a religion, a new religion. According to some, Nimrod was apparently later deified as the chief Marduk of Babylon. The same guy, James Montgomery Boyce says, it is a man's city, the secular city. It is of man, by man, and for man's glory. The original sin says it. But the second come, the come let us, is a divine conversation 
between the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father, where he says in verse 7, 11, 7, he says, come let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Here God is speaking to the heavenly council and he moves to confuse the language so that people will not continue on the path that they're choosing, but they will be on the path that God has described at the foundation of the earth. His divine intervention. It parallels quite nicely to uh, Babel and Pentecost. You see, in Babel, it was about God scattered the people in consequence due to disobedience. Versus at Pentecost, God will scatter the people to spread the gospel. In Babel, it was about disunity. In Pentecost, it's about unity. At Babel, it was about language used to promote a human agenda. Whereas in Pentecost, the language used as a sign announcing the mighty works of God. At Babel, it was confusion of their tongues. And in Pentecost, the tongues that are understood and interpreted to draw us to the glory of God. It is people against God versus people of God. It is the folly of man versus the wisdom of man. And what this does at Babel is it leads us to this closing part, which is the birth of Israel. The next section of this 11, 27 through 32, Thomas will be touching on it in a couple of weeks, but it begins the silent years where we have no recorded words or actions of God for 10 generations. This period begins with the Tower of Babel and ends with the call of Abram, Abraham. Secular thoughts in today's world of primitive stages of early man, caveman, if you want to call him that, were marked by animism. The belief, this animism is the belief that things in nature, trees, mountains, and skies have souls or consciousness. And they believe that in these early stages that animism raised polytheism, the worship of multiple gods, which ultimately came to where we sit today of monotheism. This view is not biblical. Genesis teaches the opposite. Monotheism, monotheism degraded to polytheism, producing animism. I remember once a man asked me if I would cut a branch that was blown down in a tree, if I could bring my chainsaw over and cut it down for him. And I went over and I cut it, and the man kind of whimpered in the background. He's like, I hope you're not hurting it. <laughs> I locked my doors that night. <laughs> The same guy, James Montgomery Boyce, said that nations and people do not move upward when they abandon God. They move downward. And they continue on their downward track until God, by grace, intervenes to save them and start them moving upward again. We need revival. We need a new great awakening. We need to set the world on fire with the whole story of God. And not flinch at the story of God, but to tell the whole story of God and the beauty of him. You see, Genesis is a narrative, non-fictional description of the very beginning. It tells us that our God 
is not only a God of love, but he is a God that should be reverently feared because he is also a God of wrath. Our God is, in fact, a a coming fire and a consuming fire that is promised that when he returns, he will bring it with him. (coughs) He is a God that we should obey and we should trust in his plan. You see, this is about God's provision through family. God was revealing the significance of family faith, that it is our responsibility to pass down from generation to generation the whole story of God, to hold nothing back because you're worried that your beloved child might understand that there's evil out there. Let me tell you, your child knows that there's evil out there, and they need the hope of the gospel to be set free from it. But if they don't have the contrast, then they can't understand the beauty and the loveliness of God's grace. Don't hold back on the story. God's sovereign plan of history. You see, God was setting the stage for Abraham and his faith and ultimately his descendants, which would be Jesus and David and Jesus. Don't ever forget that God knows your name in history. He knows you individually. He knows you intimately. He knows you personally. No one is lost in history because God knows everything about you because God knows the plan that he will keep you on. I titled this sermon Insanity. It's often attributed to Albert Einstein, but it actually existed before him, that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. It's what we're doing. You see, this section of God's word has taken me to the woodshed these last several weeks. As I started this story and told and confessed that I was once a corporate America junkie, I came here with the motive to build a monument to myself. I started a concept that has taken off globally now and is growing like wildfire, and I find myself in a sinful egotistical, self-righteous, disobedient manner of being angry that my name is not attached to it. Thank God for his divine intervention that he pulled me away from that and he pulled me to here to tell the whole story. You see, God has the right to override your plans. You need to understand that your plans will always be in accordance with God's will that partial obedience is still disobedience. The command is that you should not build monuments to yourselves. It's not just buildings, it's your retirement plan, it's your family, it's your children. If you're building them to be a monument, a legacy of your name, then you have failed to deliver the whole story because it is about Christ and about Christ alone. That's the story. God continues to accomplish his plan of redemption through the line of Shem, and I am glad to announce that the family of God resides in this building. Jews and Gentiles merged together, grafted together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And the cycle continues. And we thank God for his divine interruption. But I have to tell you, we must crown him not ourselves. It's not about my fruit. It's about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
It's not about my will, it's about his will. It's not about my glory, it's about his glory. And everything we say and everything we do should be filtered through that singular thought line. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you that you pursue us all the days of our lives, that you divinely interrupt and intervene in our lives to put us back on the path that is for you. I pray that today we would self-examine the monuments that we are building unto ourselves and that we would glorify you in all that we say and do and that together we would grow in your grace and in the knowledge of your son. It's in Christ's name we pray. God bless you guys. I hope, I hope that this story lights a fire under you. I hope that it sets you free in knowing that Jesus Christ not only loves you, he likes you. And though we continue to complete the same cycle of sins and we make other things bigger than our one true God, we can come to him and enter into his sanctuary. And we can lay our burdens at the foot of his cross. Fellowship with each other. Love each other as a family. And may we grow in his grace. Love you guys. See you next week.